This morning, uh, for part of my solo, is actually going to be a duet, as I have Miss Crystal going to help me out in this song. Giving a life for those who long have gone And guiding the wise men on their way Unto the place where Jesus lay Beautiful star of Bethlehem Shine on, shine on A beautiful star Beautiful star of Bethlehem, shine on, shine on. Oh, beautiful star, the hope of light, guiding the pilgrim through the night, over the mountain till the break of dawn. And into the light of perfect day, it will give out a lovely ray. Beautiful star of Bethlehem, shine on, shine on. Oh, beautiful star of Bethlehem, shine upon us until the glory dawn. Oh, give us thy light to light the way into the land of perfect day. Beautiful star of Bethlehem, shine on, shine on. Oh, beautiful star, the hope of rest, for the redeemed, the good and blessed. Yonder in glory when the crown is won. For Jesus is now the star divine, brighter and brighter he will shine. Beautiful star of Bethlehem, shine on, shine on. Oh, beautiful star, beautiful star of Bethlehem, shine upon us until the glory dawn. Oh, give us thy light to light the way into the land of perfect day. Beautiful star of Bethlehem, And all of God's people said, Amen. I was doing some research this week on the, uh, on the interwebs, you know what that is. And I was looking at some holidays that are observed around the world. Some of them are quite interesting. For instance... In northern Spain every year, they have what is called Goose Day, where a group of young Spaniards try to decapitate a dead goose that is hanging in the middle of the town square. Nobody knows exactly why, 
as to why they started doing it, that's been lost for a couple of hundred years, apparently, but they continue. In Japan every year, they have what is called a naked man festival, where the men of the village, uh, as you would imagine, strip off to nothing and go jump in a river. Every wife's dream, I suppose. But anyway, then they return to a temple and priests throw sticks at them. And if they catch one, they get good luck for the rest of the year. By the way, they do this in the middle of February on the coldest day of the year. The, the, the one holiday that I, I think I might like better than any others, though, is in Bolivia, they celebrate a punch-your-neighbor day. I suppose it would depend on who your neighbor is. Those are strange holidays, but let's face it, we have some strange ones too. Groundhog Day, seriously. Everybody gathers around a marmot to see whether or not he's going to see his shadow as to whether or not there's going to be more uh, winter. There are holidays all over the world. As a matter of fact, almost every day in the United States is some sort of national something day. And then in other parts of the world, there are a multitude of holidays that no one's ever heard of. But surely the most widespread shared commemoration across the world that involves more people, more nations, than any other holiday is Christmas. It transcends national history, and it goes everywhere that Christianity has ever been. And though it is the most widely celebrated holiday uh, in the world, it is probably the least understood. The difference between Christmas and all of the other holidays that are celebrated on the planet is that all of those other holidays and celebrations are commemoration of people and events that take some note of human happenings, human events. Whereas Christmas commemorates a divine person, a divine event. In the Christmas celebration, we are not remembering what a man has done or what men have done, but what God has done. This is not a celebration of human history. It's not a recognition of human achievement. It is a recognition of a marvelous divine accomplishment. Christmas celebrates the most monumental and the most significant event of the most significant person in the history of the world. Christmas is all about the eternal sovereign creator becoming a man, becoming a human being, to live among his creation as one of them. The child of Christmas was God in human form, born as a baby, living as a man. There is nothing more wonderful, more marvelous, more compelling, more miraculous in all the history of the world than the story of Christmas. We find here in Luke chapter 1 and verse 26 an account that everything about it is divine. This is the second time in this chapter that a holy angel appears. That's significant because remember no one has seen an angel 
in only in over 400 years. And then only one person saw him, an, an, an old priest uh, who was serving in the temple during his time. There's not been a word from God in over 400 years. There's about 400 years between the time of Malachi and the coming of Christ. So God has not spoken. An angel has not appeared in, in, in centuries. And then an angel comes to a man by the name of Zacharias, a humble priest from the hill country of Judea, doing his duty in the temple. And that was only a couple weeks a year. An angel appears to him and launches the great saga of redemption, announcing to him that he and his wife are going to have a son, and that that son will be the forerunner to Messiah, to the Christ. Both of them are in their 70s or 80s. They were old. They were barren. But a miracle is going to happen. A baby will be born to them. The angel tells Zechariah that he should name his son John. The text tells us that that occurred in the sixth month. Not the sixth month of the year, but the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy that we note in verse 24. Notice that Luke says Gabriel was sent from God. Luke always puts his focus on the divine aspect. So the source of this message was God. This is really the key to the whole story. The key to the whole Christmas story is God. Luke is recording the truth about divine intervention. And he tells us that the angel is sent to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. If there was any place in the world that was completely insignificant, it was Nazareth. It was not an important city at all. There were east and west roads, north and south roads. None of them intersected in Nazareth. Uh, it, it was a small town, 60 to 70 miles north of Jerusalem, 15 miles from the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee, about 22 miles from the Mediterranean, in the middle of nowhere. It was and is an obscure little village that no one would notice. God chooses that place to begin the story of redemption. And then notice in verse 27, the divine choice. The angel comes down and goes to one house. God has chosen one person. Gabriel comes to a virgin. In verse 34, when she was told she was going to have a baby, she said, how will this be, since I am a virgin? She confirms it herself. That is in contrast to Gabriel's first trip when he was sent to announce a miraculous birth to an old man. Now he comes to a young girl. The word virgin uh, is the Greek word meaning one who has had no sexual relation. That makes it pretty plain. The word is never used in Greek of a married woman, a woman that a marriage has been consummated. Literally, the word betrothed means much more than engagement. 
<clears throat> in our culture, someone could be engaged, but that engagement could be broken. No one would think much about it. But in, in the first century, in that part of the Jewish world, uh, a betrothal was as binding as marriage. If you wanted to break a betrothal, there had to be a divorce. It was a binding contract. It was arranged by parents. Usually, when, uh, when the girl was about 12 and the boy was about, <clears throat> about 14, uh, the betrothal would last for a year. There was no sexual relationship. They each stayed in their own home. Uh, the, the girl would remain faithful and the young man would go and begin preparing a place for them to live. Uh, usually that would be an addition to his father's house. At the end of the betrothal period, when they would be 13 and 15, uh, uh, as a normal rule, then they would come together and there would be a wedding feast, a, a marriage feast that would last for seven days. Jesus was at such a celebration in John chapter 2 when they ran out of wine. They ran out of wine because the feast lasted an entire week. At the end of the seven days, the friend of the bridegroom handed him his bride, everyone left, and then the marriage would be consummated. So Mary was betrothed to Joseph. Joseph had paid a dowry to her father, and the actual wedding was still in the future. It is important to note that Joseph was of the, a descendant of David. He was in a royal line. Notice how the text describes Mary. The virgin's name was Mary. Interesting. I'm always struck by what the Bible does not say. Doesn't say anything about Mary at all. Doesn't say she was a devout believer. Even Zacharias and Elizabeth got a verse of commendation back in verse 6 of chapter 1. But the Bible mentions nothing at all about Mary. I think that is interesting in light of the subsequent veneration of Mary by the Roman church. But notice also the divine blessing in verses 28 through 30. This is the message that comes uh, from God to Mary. The angel Gabriel enters the house and basically says, hello. That's kind of anticlimactic, really. Hello. Um, you got an angel coming from heaven, you would expect something a bit more grand, a bit more exciting, uh, but it's so simple. The simplicity of it is what makes it so beautiful. I'm sure that Mary knew that this was not a human messenger. She was aware that it was an angel. But he comes and says to Mary, basically, greetings or hello. Don't be afraid. Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Mary, uh, the angel tells her, was favored by God. She was given grace. Now, from that simple greeting, uh, 
The Roman church has built up a doctrine that says that Mary is full of grace and that she can dispense grace to others. That's not true. Mary was not the source of grace in the story. Mary was the recipient of grace. Hail, favored one. You have been favored by God. You've been, you've been given grace by God. There was no word of commendation here. It doesn't say the virgin's name was Mary and Mary was righteous and godly and loved God with all her heart, all her soul, all her mind, and all of her strength and that she can uh, dispense grace to others. It just says, Mary, you've been chosen. Nothing about her. We really don't know anything about her life. You cannot go to Mary and receive grace. Mary cannot hear the prayers of anybody. Only God can hear prayers. Neither can any glorified saint. I read the other day of a fellow who had a friend who had died a few years ago, and his friend uh, was a, a very godly person, and he said that he'd been praying to that friend ever since. And I thought, well, that's a terrible waste of time, you know, you, you don't, I, I see no advantage in praying to the dead or for the dead. Mary has no grace to give. Neither does any other glorified saint. Mary was a receiver of grace. What the angel said was, was that Mary was to receive God's grace. She was highly graced. God would give her his grace. She, she later uh, prays uh, and asks God's blessing upon a Savior. Who needs a Savior? People who are sinners need a Savior. Mary was a sinner who needed a Savior. She is to be, she is to be uh, thought well of because of her faith, but not because she was sinlessly perfect and one who could dispense grace. Notice in verse 29, she was greatly troubled by the statement. She's an obscure person in an obscure town in an obscure part of the world. And a messenger from God comes and says that God has graced her and she's shaken by this. She's disturbed, perplexed, confused. And that is understandable. What, what troubled her was the statements, it's here as if she's asking, what do you mean that God has graced me? Why would she be so perplexed? Again, because she knew she was a sinner. That's why in verse 47, she praises God and says, God, my Savior. She needed a, a, a Savior like anyone else. And so then the angel tells her about the divine child. There is an announcement in verses 31 through 33. And this announcement is a perfect summation of the entire work of Jesus Christ. His saving work is summed up in the name Jesus. His perfect righteous life is summed up in the title, Great. And his deity in the Son of the Most High. You have his resurrection, his ascension, and his glorious return all bound up in the promise that God would give to him the throne of his father David. So in the, 
in what the angel says, you have a summation of the righteous life, the saving death, and the glorious reign of Jesus Christ. Notice his saving death, verse 31. You shall call his name Jesus. A very familiar name in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it was Joshua. It was a name which means the Lord saves. Yahweh saves. The God of the Old Testament was a God of salvation, and the people knew it. God is a saving God. He saves sinners. That's why Jesus said he came. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. You shall call his name Jesus, Matthew said, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Luke chapter 2, today in the city of David has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Christ Jesus came into the world, Paul said, to save sinners of whom I am chief. You read the New Testament, you read the, the four Gospels, you read the book of Acts, you read through all of the epistles and all of the book of the Revelation, the book of Hebrews, the dominant theme of the New Testament is that Christ came to save sinners. Jesus means the Lord is salvation. And salvation is not a foreign thing to God. It is not a reluctant work. It is the very expression of his essence. Mary's son will be the Savior, the only one who can save us from our sins. So bound up in the name Jesus is his saving death. And then in verse 32, we see his righteous life. The angel said, he will be great. I'm amazed at the understatement of that. Uh, we use that word to describe all kinds of things. We have a great day. We ate a great sandwich. We have a great car. You know, we saw a great movie. We played a great game of golf. I've, I've never said that. Uh, we, we tend to trivialize language. Uh, so we have to stack on endless adjectives. A few years ago, a word that got very overworked, I thought, by people was the word awesome. Oh, that's awesome, man. Oh, oh, dude, that's awesome. You know, in reality, only God can be awesome. Think about what the word awe means. But the, the angel says that Jesus will be great. That could be translated extraordinary, splendid, magnificent, noble, distinguished, powerful, eminent. All of those will be substituted or could be substituted for great. But they still leave us far short of what should be said about Jesus. Verse 15 says that John will be great in the sight of the Lord, John the Baptist. But John will be great with an imputed greatness. God will give to him a greatness that is really not his own. But the greatness of Jesus is not something that is given to him or granted to him. It is an unqualified greatness that he has possessed always from before the beginning 
of time. His greatness is perhaps best understood if you look at a verse in John chapter 12. John is writing about Jesus fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah 6. In verse 41, he said, These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and spoke of him. So Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus Christ and spoke of him. Now when did Isaiah see the glory of God? Isaiah chapter 6, where he says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. When Isaiah saw the Lord, he saw Jesus Christ. He is the visible part, the visible manifestation of the, un, of the invisible God. The glory of the Father is the same as the glory of the Son. That's why the verse we looked at in John chapter 1 a couple of weeks ago, that's what it says. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, and it was the glory of the only begotten of the Father. The same glory that Isaiah saw, the apostles saw. The glory of God is the manifestation of his attributes. In the book of Exodus, where Moses wants to see God, God says, I'll show you my glory. And it says that his mercy and his goodness and his loving kindness pass before Moses. When he says in verse 32, he will be great, it means that Jesus Christ will manifest the very glory of God. You will see all the attributes of God manifested in his perfectly righteous life. He will be great. And then we're told that he will be called the Son of the Most High. We could do a whole Bible study on that. The Most High means there is nobody higher. It was a very familiar term, uh, a Jewish title for God used all over the Old Testament. It refers to his sovereignty. The essential nature of Jesus is bound up in the, in the title, Son of the Most High. Son of God, God the Son, and yet a man. God became man, lived a righteous life, died a sacrificial atoning death to save us from our sins. But that's not the end of the story. Because in verse 32 and 33, we have his glorious reign. The story doesn't end with the death of Jesus Christ, doesn't end with the resurrection or our personal salvation. The end of the story is this. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. The story of Jesus Christ ends with a glorious kingdom and with him reigning on the throne of David over all of the world, establishing what will be an eternal sovereignty. Jesus Christ came as a baby. He died as a man. He ascended back to heaven, and he is coming Again, he will establish his kingdom 
and he will rule the world with a rod of righteousness, and peace will prevail over the whole world. One of my, one of my favorite songs that we sing at this time of year, we're going to sing after we have communion, but it's a song entitled, Joy to the World, the Lord has Come. It is one of my favorite songs because Isaac Watts based it on the 98th Psalm, which is a messianic psalm. We sing the words of that song this morning. Pay careful attention to the words. It speaks of his second coming. It speaks of a time when he will rule the world, when he will do away with the curse. Jesus Christ, who came as a baby, who died for sinners, is coming again. He will rule over the house of David. He will rule over the world forever and ever. That is our, that is our story this morning. That is the message of Christmas. That he came to save. That he will be great. That he is called the Son of the Most High. And that he is coming again to reign. Let's pray.